Well, welcome this evening uh, to this Conflict Research Group public lecture by Jonathan Paul. Uh, the lecture is obviously based on his new book, Talking to Terrorists, uh, How to End Armed Conflicts. There will be uh, an opportunity to buy copies of the book, and Jonathan will sign copies after the lecture. <coughs> so Jonathan will talk for about 30, or 45, 30 40 minutes, and then we'll have a Q&A of about 30 minutes, and then there'll be the book signing. My name's Professor Jim Hughes. I teach comparative politics and conflict studies here in the government department, and uh, I, um, I'm the director of the conflict research group. Jonathan was a British diplomat. He uh, served as Tony Blair's chief of staff uh, for some years before uh, Tony Blair was prime minister, and then throughout the tenure of uh, Tony Blair in uh, Downing Street. He was Tony Blair's chief negotiator in Northern Ireland uh, for many years, uh, leading, culminating in the uh, Good Friday Agreement. Um, he, after um, leaving office, uh, he has uh, engaged in uh, writing books. He wrote a book about Northern Ireland, a very good book, um, uh, called Great Hit Little Room, and he's written a book about power and uh, Machiavelli. The new Machiavelli. The new Machiavelli, that's it. And uh, he's now written this book, uh, uh, basically a combination of his experiences in uh, negotiating ends to armed conflicts. He is also a, his own NGO, which is engaged in uh, mediation efforts uh, called Intermediate. So I'd like you to... Welcome, Jonathan, and uh, give you the floor. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Jim, and thank you for that, that, that introduction. Um, uh, as Jim says, I've spent the last 17-odd uh, years uh, talking to terrorists, first in the context of Northern Ireland and then in the... Um, then working with a, a foundation in Switzerland called the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue, working in particular on ETA, but also elsewhere. And now I've set up my own charity about three years ago, Intermediate, working in conflicts from Colombia to Burma and, uh, and beyond. I have to say, I wasn't always in, in favour of talking to, to terrorists. The, the first time I met one, um, they, uh, the IRA, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, uh, they had uh, shot my father through the ear in an ambush in the Second World War in Northern Ireland. And they'd put my brother, who worked for Mrs. Thatcher, on a death list for eight years. So I didn't feel particularly warm and well disposed to them. And in fact, I, I refused to shake hands with them in the first meeting we had, as did Alistair Campbell, actually, who was with me at the time. Uh, Tony Blair was, was rather more sensible and shook them by the hand. Uh, it's a, the gesture I made was something I regret now. I think it was petty and the, the wrong thing to do. Although, writing this book, it's interesting how often it's a an issue, the handshake, the first time enemies meet in these circumstances. Um, after that meeting, we went on a walkabout. Tony Blair went on a walkabout in a, a shopping mall in East Belfast, um, in a very Protestant area. And at first it was fine, but then gradually we were mobbed by a gang of grannies uh, who started throwing rubber gloves at him. And he was very puzzled by this. He, couldn't work. he thought it was a protest about washing up or something like that. But I had to explain to him, they were saying he should have worn gloves to shake hands with, with terrorists like Adams and McGuinness. And it is a very visceral issue. 
About three days after that uh, encounter, I got a call from Martin McGuinness out of the blue through the number 10 switchboard, and he said, would I come and meet him um, in Derry, incognito, and not tell the security authorities, the securocrats, as he called them. Uh, so I asked Tony Blair, and he said, yes, go. So I took a, a plane to Belfast International and a taxi to Derry, and I stood on a street corner um, feeling rather foolish, like someone out of a spy novel. And two guys with shaved heads came up to me and pushed me into the back of a taxi and then drove me round for an hour in Derry until I was completely lost and then pushed me out of the door of the taxi outside a little modern house and I knocked on the door and Martin McGuinness answered the door on crutches and made a rather unfunny joke about kneecapping, which was the IRA's favourite way of punishing people at the time by drilling holes through their knees and elbows. And we spent three hours in, in that, the living room of this safe house where the lady had gone out left us a cup of tea and some biscuits. We made no breakthrough at all, but it became a pattern that I would go over once, twice a week for the 10 years we were in government to go and meet with Adams, to meet with McGuinness in safe houses in Belfast, Derry, uh, Dublin and elsewhere. And what I learned was you do need to be able to build up some trust. You need to be prepared to go onto the other side's turf and in particular to listen to uh, uh, their complaints uh, th that they, they have about these things. There is something about the shared risk of doing that sort of thing that can build enough trust to make progress uh, in a negotiation between enemies. There is, of course, a limit to how much trust you can, you can build in those circumstances. I remember one incident in 2004 uh, when we were negotiating late in Monastery, the Clonard Monastery in West Belfast, and uh, the, I was very anxious about catching a plane back to... Uh, back to London, and the uh, monks had kindly given us dinner in the refectory. We were sitting at dinner, and I was trying to work out what the time was, and the minute hand had come loose in my watch, and it was swinging backwards and forwards, and I couldn't work out what the time was. McGuinness noticed, and he said, uh, why don't you give me your watch? It's, uh, there's a very good watchmaker at the end of my street. I'll get it fixed for you. And I said, no, no, honestly, really, you don't need to worry, please. Uh, but he insisted, so I gave him the watch, and he took it away. And he gave it back to me two weeks later at the negotiations at Leeds Castle, and it was very nicely fixed. But I, of course, had to give it to the security authorities to check for trackers and bugs. And they took it to pieces and broke the minute hand again, and I had to have it fixed at great expense. So there are limits to how much trust you can build uh, in those circumstances. For me, uh, Northern Ireland was the most uh, frustrating, the most difficult, the most... Uh, sleep-depriving uh, enterprise I ever engaged in, but also, at least in retrospect, the most important and the one I'm most satisfied with uh, that I, in, in my life anyway. And I wanted, in this book, to try and look back and see if the lessons I had learnt from Northern Ireland uh, also applied elsewhere. So I wanted to look at the conflicts over the last 30 years since the end of the Cold War and look at how those had been resolved and whether there were any common lessons what I concluded is there certainly is no such thing as a Northern Ireland model or any other model. Uh, all conflicts have different causes and they have different resolutions. But there are certain lessons that seem to work in certain circumstances, in the circumstances of these peace negotiations and some things that clearly don't. And it's worth trying to draw some of those lessons. The, f the first lesson for, for me, I think, is um, that governments always say they will not talk to terrorists and yet they nearly always seem to do so in the end. Uh, if you think about British decolonisation, uh, we uh, labelled Begin as a terrorist and we tried to hunt him down after the King David Hotel bomb. Uh, later we welcomed him as a statesman and a peacemaker. 
Uh, we did the same with Jomo Kenyatta. We locked him up as a terrorist in the north of the country. We released him in order to uh, negotiate with him and uh, make him the first president of an independent Kenya. Archbishop Makarios in Cyprus, we exiled to um, the Seychelles as a terrorist. We brought him back. Uh, he was elected the first president, and we negotiated independence with him too. And it wasn't just us. If you look at the French in Algiers, exactly the same pattern. They said they would never talk to the terrorists of the FMLN, and yet they ended up doing exactly that in a very painful uh, and lengthy process, and a lot of people died unnecessarily. So that we have a collective amnesia about this. We always, every time we meet a new group, we say they're different, we're never going to talk to them, and yet we ought to remember that we nearly always seem to do so. Hugh Gateskill, the former Labour Party leader, probably captured it best, saying, all terrorists end up with tea in the Savoy as guests of Her Majesty's government. And there's certainly some truth of that in terms of decolonisation. Now, arguments are presented against talking to terrorists. I'll just take three of them. One is that it's uh, appeasement, that by doing so, uh, you're giving in to them. George W. Bush made a speech to the Knesset in 2005 in which he said that talking to terrorists was like um, Chamberlain talking to Hitler at Munich, and we knew where that led. I personally think that's a complete misinterpretation of appeasement. The trouble with uh, the pre-Second World War pro pro process was not talking to Hitler. Trying to avoid another catastrophic world war was a sensible thing to do. Thinking you could solve it by giving him a slice of Czechoslovakia and egging him on to do more was not a sensible thing to do. And talking to terrorists is not the same as giving in to terrorists or agreeing with terrorists. The IRA wanted an independent, united Ireland at the barrel of a gun. No British government was ever going to agree to a united Ireland at the barrel of a gun against the wishes of the majority of the people in the north of Ireland. Uh, there were, however, other things that the IRA wanted, and those were what we were trying to explore in the negotiation, and that's what we ended up with uh, in terms of power sharing, in terms of north-south bodies, in terms of human, human rights. But so I don't believe it is appeasement. The second uh, criticism is that you legitimise terrorists by talking to them. Uh, that is true. It is true that terrorists are constantly seeking um, uh, legitimisation. They long to be recognised. And so there is a reward for them in being seen publicly to talk to them. However, in my view, it's a price worth paying for these negotiations because it's usually a temporary legitimization if there is no peace at the end of it. If you take, for example, the FARC in Colombia, uh, the Caguan negotiations from 1999 uh, to 2002, they certainly got some legitimization from turning up to negotiations, but when they proved completely unwilling to settle for anything reasonable, when they made a joke out of the negotiations, they became even less legitimate when they went back to war afterwards and were dismissed as a narco-terrorist gang. So I don't believe legitimization is an argument against either. The third argument is that we reward bad behaviour by talking to people. I personally don't see talking to people as a reward. I think that's the failure in that particular argument. You wouldn't use talking to someone or not talking to someone in your everyday life, unless you were a child perhaps, uh, as a way of rewarding them or not rewarding them. So I think if that is to be an element of policy for a government, it makes no sense at all. But I think the argument that's particularly strong for doing so is, if we look back at history, there does seem to be no alternative if the group enjoys genuine political support. Hugh Ward, who was the uh, Chief Constable of the Northern Ireland Police Service at the end of the Troubles and as it transferred into the PSNI from the RUC, uh, said that he knew of no example anywhere in the world of a terrorist problem being policed out. Um, General Petraeus said in the case of Iraq 
there was no chance of us being able to kill and capture our way out of an industrial strength insurgency. Um, so the fact is, if you look at the way that terrorist uh, groups end, I don't believe if they have political support, there is an alternative. A number of academics have come up with lists and catalogues and, and quantitative approaches which, if you look at them closely, make little sense. They try and set up various other ways in which uh, terrorism ends. Decapitation is one that the academics like in particular. But actually, if you look at the examples they give of decapitation, for example, Abdullah Ocalan of the PKK, they say when he was captured, that was the end of the PKK. Well, no, it wasn't. The PKK campaign actually increased after his capture. If you think about the killing of Sheikh Yassim in, in, uh, in Hamas, it didn't lead to the end of Hamas. Hamas went from strength to strength afterwards. So decapitation... There's an interesting debate about Comrade Gonzalo in Peru we can have later, but, but in general, decapitation doesn't seem to work. Uh, academics point to groups like uh, Bader Meinhof, Action Direct, um, Symbionese Liberation Army, but it seems to me that's comparing apples and oranges. If you think they're the same as the IRA or the ANC or GAM in Indonesia or the FMLN in El Salvador, they are simply not the same sort of animal. These groups that have real large-scale support uh, do need to be talked to if you're going to settle, because in the end... There is, if there's a political problem, you have to find a political solution to it, not a military solution. The example that is sometimes quoted is of, of the opposite is Sri Lanka. And in particular, Rajapaksas, uh, who used to, to rule in Sri Lanka and who won the campaign against the Tamil Tigers, used to propagate what they had done as an example of a military way of solving the problem. Um, I have to say I don't agree with them. Um, the fact is that if uh, Prabhakar, the leader of the Tamil Tigers, uh, had been slightly wiser, he would not have been defeated. If you talk to the Norwegian negotiators with the Tamil Tigers and the Sri Lankan government, they say that Prabhakar was always considered a military genius. In the end, he turned out to be a military fool by trying to fight a fixed campaign against a fixed army rather than uh, a guerrilla campaign. Had he fought a guerrilla campaign, he'd still be out there fighting it now in, in the jungle, not being defeated. Secondly, the methods the Sri Lankan government used to finish off the Tigers at Nandikal Lagoon are methods that no Western democracy could use to deal with, with terrorists. It's not applicable to our sort of situation in any way. And thirdly, the Rajapaks has never managed to solve the problem uh, which lay at the heart of it, which was the rights of the Tamils uh, and the feelings of the Tamils about identity. They never addressed that. That, of course, is the main reason that, well, one of the main reasons that the election went against them this time and they have been replaced by a government that is now trying to deal with the Tamil question because in the end the Tamil question needed to be dealt with politically. So if you have a dictatorship then maybe you can suppress a terrorist movement totally because there's no questioning of what you do, you can use any method. But even the cases of the Soviet Union uh, in the old days suggest that isn't a permanent answer. These issues simply go into the deep freeze like Chechnya and reappear again 40 years later after you've repressed them or even with the Assads in Syria where Assad father managed to kill 20,000-odd people to suppress a rebellion in the Brotherhood, but it came back uh, 20 years later. It is, of course, difficult for democratic governments to be seen to be talking to terrorists. Um, John Major got up in Parliament and said that uh, it would turn his stomach to talk to Gerry Adams, and he would never do it. At exactly that moment, he was corresponding with Martin McGuinness and conducting a negotiation with the IRA, Thank goodness he was, because if he hadn't been, there wouldn't have been a, a settlement on Northern Ireland. He needed to show the IRA that there was a political way out before they'd be prepared to go on ceasefire. And since he couldn't talk to them publicly, 
he had to try and do it privately. Uh, I was talking the other day to Colin Parry, whose son Tim Parry was killed in the Warrington bomb, 12-year-old. And Colin said that if he'd um, known when his 12-year-old son died in his arms, the British government had been talking to the IRA, uh, he would have been horrified. If someone had told him three months later that the British government had been talking to the IRA, he'd have been delighted because he'd know his son would not have died in vain, that there was going to be a peaceful solution to the problem of the IRA. So I think people do understand why governments have to approach it in this way. It's not just, again, in Britain that this happens. In Spain, every prime minister since Franco uh, has denied that they're talking to ETA, and up to now every single prime minister in Spain has been talking to ETA, and they sometimes go about denying it in a, in a funny way. Adolfo Suarez, the first prime minister after Franco, uh, was asked by the leader of the opposition in Spanish Cortes, was he speaking to ETA? He got up and said, no, I'm not speaking to ETA. The leader of the opposition, who was Felipe González, got up and said, are you sure you're not speaking to ETA? And he got back up and said, no, no, I'm not speaking to ETA. So Felipe González got up again the second time and said, but you told me over dinner last night you were talking to ETA. <laughs> and he still got up and said, no, he wasn't talking to ETA. So there is a reason why governments start these negotiations, usually using intelligence agencies. In Britain, we opened a channel to the IRA in 1972 using SIS. It stayed live right through to the correspondence with Major from 91 to 93, and that channel was fundamental in being able to get to a ceasefire. South Africa, it was the NIS, the National Intelligence Service, who opened up the channel to Mandela and then later in prison and then later opened up the channel to uh, the ANC in, in, in exile. Um, the one other thing I'd say about democratic uh, governments and negotiating with terrorists is that they have a particular problem uh, if it becomes a political football. In Britain, we were lucky enough to have bipartisanship. When Tony Blair became leader of the Labour Party, he changed the party's policy on Northern Ireland and he gave unqualified support to John Major. He said, John Major's taking a risk doing Northern Ireland peace process. We will support him. We will not make it harder. And the Tories sort of did that when they came into government, although they couldn't resist occasionally making it difficult. But if you compare that with Spain, when the socialist government tried to negotiate with ETA, and the opposition followed a policy called crispation, where they tried to make life as difficult as possible for the socialist government making concessions. In that circumstance, it is really hard to make peace. And you see it elsewhere in the world, in Colombia at the moment, where former President Uribe is making life very, very difficult for President Santos in trying to make peace. It looks, if you look back over these 30 years, that having a third party involved in negotiations makes a big difference. It makes it much easier to get to an agreement. It can even work on practical things like how do you agree when a meeting should take place or how do you agree what the agenda should be or uh, much more so when you come to what concessions should be. People don't want to take concessions from one side or the other. It's much easier if it comes from a third party. For governments, this is very difficult. They see it as an invasion of sovereignty. The Indian government has always been extremely keen to keep any foreign power out of discussions of Kashmir. Um, uh, even in Nepal, they were very keen to keep uh, any th third party out of negotiations there and in the end became their uh, third party themselves. It's because governments fear loss of sovereignty and they fear loss of control over the negotiation if there is a third party. Um, it gradually changed after the end of the, uh, of the Cold War. Before the end of the Cold War, very few of these civil wars were, were, were concluded by negotiations because it was a zero-sum game. It was either a Soviet win or an uh, American win. Immediately after the end of the Cold War, there was a sort of golden era for the UN, who finally came into their own right, if you like, of what, the reason they're being created to act as a mediator in places like um, Angola and uh, uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, Namibia 
uh, and of course El, El Salvador in particular. So the UN was able for a brief period to play that role it was designed for. It became too threatening shortly thereafter and was replaced by small governments. So in Sri Lanka, they weren't going to have the UN involved, and they, didn't, they looked at other big governments like the British government and rejected them, chose the Norwegians because they were a long way away, and they were in no way threatening and had no colonial past. After that, even um, small governments became too threatening for, for um, governments in these circumstances, and we now see a sort of new diplomacy where you get NGOs... Uh, like Sant'Egidio, the, the lay Catholic order, which played a key role mediating in Mozambique, uh, or the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue I mentioned, or even little groups like, like our own, that can play a role because they're discreet, they're below the radar screen, they're not threatening in any way uh, to, to a government. Making contact with an armed group isn't uh, all that easy. I mean, they're not advertising themselves. They don't have head offices you can go and knock on the door and say hello. And it can often be quite... Difficult to find them. Uh, a colleague of mine who started the negotiations with the GAM from Indonesia, the separatist movement from Aceh, knew the name of the leader and knew that he lived in Stockholm, but had no other way of getting in touch with him. He spent a couple of days working his way through the Stockholm telephone book, calling everyone with the right name, until he finally got the right person. And to his surprise, was welcomed to come and see him. These groups often have... This, this, the leader of this group said no one had tried to talk to him in 30 years from the international community. This is the first person who tried to engage him and listen to what he had to say. Um, in the case of um, uh, the Nepalese Maoists, the same colleague tried to make contact with the Maoists, found it very, very hard. In the end, decided to um, look at their website. They had a website called shiningpath.com in homage to the rather ghastly Maoists of, of Peru. And uh, they sent an email to shiningpath.com and to their surprise got a reply and then managed to follow it up and eventually have a covert meeting in an unbuilt um, uh, skyscraper in, in Delhi. In other occasions, the way to start a negotiation is to start in jail, because that's where you know where the terrorist leader is, and you can find him, and it's relatively safe. That's how the South Africans started negotiations with Nelson Mandela, because he was in jail. They could go and talk to him safely. They could talk to him secretly. They could begin uh, such a negotiation. Uh, and often these, these starts are very haphazard. Jair Hirschfeld, who was the academic who started the Oslo process, uh, gave his phone number to an intermediary who gave it to um, uh, Abu Allah, the Palestinian leader. Abu Allah tried to call his aunt in, um, in uh, East Finchley uh, 17 times before eventually getting through to him. Um, Jair didn't have enough money to hire a room at a hotel, so he thought they'd meet at the Ritz. What he hadn't realized was on Tuesdays the Ritz had a thé dansant, so they tried to negotiate in the restaurant with elderly couples waltzing around them, which I suppose at least was some sort of cover. And he was brave in doing so because it was illegal at that stage under Israeli law to be talking to the PLO. They repealed the law later, but at that stage it was actually illegal to do so. The point of these first contacts are to, um, to build trust, to, um, as I say, these groups want people to listen to them. They've never been, never been listened to before. And you often have to do an awful lot of listening. Um, the Norwegian negotiators who, uh, who dealt with um, uh, the Tamil Tigers, uh, Eric Solheim, who was a, a minister, he spent literally thousands of hours coming to London to, list, to listen to Balassingham, the deputy leader of the movement, in restaurants eating food he really didn't like, uh, having to drink very horrible white wine, but thousands and thousands of hours to, to hear what they had to say, to hear what their grievances were. In the case of Northern Ireland, I used to joke that if we ended a meeting after half an hour, we'd have only got to 1689 
and there'll be another 300 years of complaints to get through before the end of the meeting. And it's true in most of these conflicts that you have the, have the same problem. The point is, it's not just about listening. It's about actually hearing what people are saying. People often think listening is sitting still and not saying anything. It's actually trying to hear the nuances, hear what they didn't say this time that they did say last time, or what they did say this time that they didn't say last time. You're looking for the openings. It's about really being very alert to, to, to what's on, on offer. And it's also about in building this channel. So once you've made the contact, you're trying to build a channel that can later bear a negotiation. And it, it is really, in that case, about shared risks. Uh, the the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue that worked for a long time with ETA had ETA terrorists living in their houses in Switzerland uh, totally illegally. Uh, they ended up with these terrorists actually babysitting their children and looking after the dog. And it's that kind of thing, because these people have been on the run for all their life haven't been able to see their own children for 30 years, they haven't been able to cook, they haven't been able to have a family life. And if you can actually give them some, uh, some certainty like that, it, gives, it does help to build a bond of trust that can help you negotiate. Although you do need to be careful, because I have seen mediators get a form of Stockholm Syndrome where they actually end up uh, being um, sort of sympathising with the underdog too much and they can no longer be uh, a mediator between two sides. And there is also an educative role to this, this period. Both sides need to while you're creating the channel, need to be understanding each other. What do they really want? What's really possible in the outside world? Because many uh, terrorist groups live in a sort of ghetto, often a physical ghetto, uh, uh, but more often a, um, a mental ghetto. They only talk to people who share their views. And so you need to break out of that and have them talk to uh, people who have a wider perspective from that point of view. But also governments have a very, tend to have a very tunnel vision and need to find a way of breaking out of it. The main thing I'd say is these processes take a lot longer than people think. They're not done in a week or even a couple of months. It can take a very long period. That said, it's not always the right time to start a negotiation. Uh, there are usually, looking back over the last 30 years, and actually before, if you go right back to, for example, 1919 and the original IRA, there are usually two key factors that mean that negotiations might have some prospect of succeeding. The first is what's called a mutually hurting stalemate uh, that uh, academic Zartman in particular have, has come up with. And that is the idea that both sides have not just got to a stalemate, not just that both can't win, but they understand they can't win and it's uncomfortable to carry on fighting. In Northern Ireland, I think, if you look back at it, probably by late 70s, early 1980s, the British Army realised that they could contain the IRA forever. They could keep security at a acceptable level, which meant a couple hundred people dying a year. That could go on forever, but they were never going to defeat the IRA altogether, wipe them out. I think by about the mid-1980s, Gerry Adams uh, and Martin McGuinness realised, likewise, they were never going to be defeated, but they were never going to drive the Brits out of Northern Ireland, and they could see, because uh, there's a generational aspect to it too, they could see their nephews and nieces, cousins and so on, getting arrested, getting killed, and it was a hurting stalemate. It <coughs> was not something they wanted to, to stay with. And that's when they started reaching out first to John Hume uh, and then to um, the Irish government and finally to the British government. And you see that sort of generational thing also with the FARC in, in Colombia. You know, the, FARC, the members of the Secretariat in FARC, there's a seven-man Secretariat that commands the FARC. They're now all in their 60s, but one of them. And frankly, when you're 60, it's a lot less fun running around in the jungle when you've got lumbago or gout or whatever it is rather than when you're 20. And so you want to make peace in those circumstances. There is a problem with mutually hurting stalemates if they <coughs> um, are too comfortable. In other words, they're not hurting enough. If you think about Cyprus and the, uh, 
for the uh, Greek Cypriots, life is perfectly comfortable. Why would they want to make a concession in those sort of negotiations? It's only when life hurts a lot that you might want to, to concede. Um, and you also have to bear in mind that a mutually hurting stalemate is not stable. It can change. In Sri Lanka, there was a mutually hurting stalemate that allowed negotiations to begin. But when Colonel Karuna, the commander of the Eastern Tamil Tigers, deserted with his troops, the balance changed. And there was no longer a mutually hurting stalemate. And the talks collapsed. Um, the second factor that, that's crucial, I think, in allowing a negotiation to happen is leadership, strong leadership. I mean, South Africa is the most obvious case with Nelson Mandela, but also with F.W. de Klerk. If you hadn't had both of them, it's very hard to see how you'd have got to a successful peace process. Um, in the case of the UK, I think it's also true. If you hadn't had Bertie Ahern and Tony Blair, Jerry Adams and David Trimble, it's hard to believe you'd get to a settlement. In his autobiography, Tony Blair accuses me of saying that... Um, he had a messiah complex, and that's why he was able to get to an agreement in Northern Ireland. That wasn't quite it. Mo Molum, who was quite a colourful character, who had a colourful turn of phrase, said to me that Tony thought he was effing Jesus, which is not exactly the same thing, but, but, it's, broad, <laughs> but it's broadly related. And it is, it is interesting if you look at these negotiations. It's when the, a leader thinks that a problem can be solved and thinks that he can do it, that it actually happens. So... Um, uh, you know, Tony Blair believed he, that Northern Ireland could be solved. John Major believed it could be solved but didn't believe he could do it. Mrs Thatcher didn't believe Northern Ireland could be solved. Tony Blair thought both it could be solved and he could do it. And if you have that sort of belief, you tend to get um, success. There's an interesting sort of sidebar on that, which is <coughs> life-threatening diseases can have an impact. So Ian Paisley, uh, in 2004, went into hospital and very nearly died. He came out a completely changed man, both physically uh, and mentally. And he said to us afterwards he'd had a close encounter with his maker. Uh, and he decided he wanted to end his life as Dr. Yes rather than Dr. No. And he then pursued that you know, rigorously when he came out. He was always looking for an agreement, even when his colleagues in the DUP weren't. So he changed. A similar thing happened to uh, Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela. Uh, when he got cancer, he not only started going to church twice a day, but he also... Uh, having been the main sort of backer of the FARC, started pushing the FARC into a negotiation and was instrumental uh, in them happening. <coughs> um, I won't go on too much longer, but the, let me just say a few words about the art of negotiation. I, I, I'm not necessarily very well placed to talk about it. I never had any training in negotiation. When I joined the Foreign Office in 1979, uh, we had one day of training, and it consisted of being given uh, Harold Nicholson's book, Diplomacy, which was first published in 1939 and republished in 1947 with the classic British understatement. Uh, a number of significant events have happened since this book was first published. Uh, and we were given a guide to Plasmont about where you sit at dinner parties, which was very, very useful, but didn't help me much in the next 17 years I spent negotiating inside the Foreign Office. So I'm not a, theori <coughs> not a theoretician of, of negotiation. But it does strike me it's extraordinary that when anyone goes into a war or goes into a political campaign, they make a huge amount of effort to prepare, to think about how they'll handle it. In negotiations, people seem to just turn up and think it's going to be okay. Almost no preparation seems to be made in, in most negotiations, and it needs to be. Um, the, one of the key things I've learned about a negotiation is that it's uh, not an event. It's not about an agreement. It's not about one day when you celebrate. It's a process. You start with a bunch of people who don't trust each other and want to kill each other, and you've got to try and end up with a bunch of people who do trust each other, and it's a very long process. The agreement is just one step along that way. Um, Shimon Perez, who um, is a master of the one-liner, uh, 
says that in the Middle East, everyone knows more or less how the Middle East peace process is going to end up. Um, we know what will happen on territory, more or less. We know what happened on refugees. We know perhaps what will happen on Jerusalem. But there's no process to get there. And he said, um, the uh, uh, good news is there's light at the end of the tunnel. The bad news is there's no tunnel. And that's what a negotiator is about. It's trying to build that tunnel that will get you into, into, a, um, into, a, into a successful negotiation. And that requires a huge amount of patience. You have to really be prepared to absorb an awful lot of pain, both personal and political. In 2004, our negotiations between Paisley and uh, Adams failed. They collapsed. Um, I was the only person who thought we should keep on negotiating. The Irish had given up. I flew over to Belfast. Um, I was met by a Northern Ireland office official at the airport. He drove me about a mile. Uh, he stopped the car. Uh, he told me to get out so the driver wouldn't hear what he said. And he said the biggest bank robbery in world history had happened the night before. And the dogs on the street knew that it was the IRA that had done it. Uh, I was furious. I was right out on a limb about negotiating with them. I felt like going straight back to, to London. I kicked a stone and stubbed my toe. But I decided that the sensible thing was thinking of this as a bicycle. You've got to keep the thing rolling. If you've got a process up and running, if you've got a bicycle moving, don't let it fall over. Don't let it... Um, if you do, you'll find it incredibly difficult to pick it up again. You must keep that process uh, moving and not allow anyone to walk out. Of course, allowing people to walk out is um, easier said than done. Ian, um, John Major made a classic mistake from that point of view when negotiating with Ian Paisley. Uh, Ian Paisley came into Downing Street and John Major used to use the cabinet room, the big room on the ground floor, as his office. And Paisley was extremely rude to Major. He accused him of lying. And Major demanded that he withdraw the allegation. Paisley absolutely refused. And Major said, well, if you don't do it, I'm going to walk out. And Paisley said, well, I'm not going to withdraw it. So John Major walked out. But what he'd forgotten was he'd walked out of his own office. And, <laughs> and Paisley was not leaving. So Paisley stayed there the rest of the day and then had to be negotiated out of the office. So <laughs> if you do walk out, be careful where you walk out of. Um, there are lots of things I could say about, about the art of negotiation, but I think I will, will skip them because of time. But the most difficult thing that occurs in a negotiation, particularly with an armed group, is how do you bring it into land? Um, uh, armed groups are consensus-based organisations. They find it quite hard to take difficult decisions to uh, make difficult concessions. And so they'd rather, on the whole, like a plane at Heathrow, just go round and round and round rather than come into land. And what you have to do is try and encourage them to land. The best way to do it, the easiest way to do it, is to set a deadline. But deadlines only work if you've got some real-life event. In Northern Ireland, we set a, a deadline of one year after we came in power that we would uh, um, reach an agreement. And we told the IRA that we'd bring them into talks um, uh, six weeks after they went on ceasefire. Because one of the, our analyses was that John Major had made a mistake by stringing out the process more and more and more, not bringing Sinn Féin into negotiations until they blew up Canary Wharf and went back to violence. We set that deadline. We were told by everyone we should stop it. It was a mistake. We'd ruined the process. We should keep going. <coughs> but we stuck to the deadline, and we got to the Good Friday Agreement. Thereafter, in the next 10 years, we set deadlines sort of every four months, and then we just rolled through them, and we lost all credibility. So a deadline in those circumstances had nothing to it. In fact, it was actually counterproductive. The IRA would come to me before a meeting and say, before meeting and say well, when's the deadline, because we're not going to make any concessions until we get to the actual deadline. We only managed to bring it into land in the end by uh, setting a deadline and legislating to abolish the assembly, abolish all the institutions, so there was, they knew 
there would be nothing left at the end of the year unless they came to an agreement. And that forced them to come to an agreement in St Andrews in November of that year. There would not have been an agreement without that deadline. But deadlines, sometimes people set deadlines with no real event and they are hopeless because you lose credibility, it works against you. You have to have something that um, is real. The second element that helps you bring it into land is constructive ambiguity. You need to have in an agreement sometimes to bridge a gap some, some words that mean different things to different people. In the case of the Good Friday Agreement, we could have sat there for three years rather than for three days and three nights trying to get agreement on decommissioning of weapons, and we wouldn't have succeeded. So we put in language that was ambiguous. That got us the Good Friday Agreement, but it then became a destructive ambiguity because particularly the Unionist side thought it meant something uh, that didn't happen. The weapons weren't given up. The IRA didn't give up paramilitary organisations. And so support for the um, agreement went down and down and down amongst uh, uh, um, unionists until 2003. It was down about 30%. So we had to force the issue at that stage. So Tony Blair made a speech at Belfast Harbour Commissioner's Office in which he said the IRA had to choose between the Armalite and the ballot box. And, <coughs> and, he, um, and it, we were very nervous when the speech was made. We weren't sure what the IRA reaction would be. Three days later, Jerry Adams gave me a call and said it was a very good speech. And so that's great because we were nervous about it. And he said, would you write me a response? I was sort of taken aback, and I sat there and put a towel around my head and tried to think like a Republican and wrote a speech ending in, can I imagine a future without the IRA? Yes, I can. And I sent it off, and I was even more amazed a week later to turn on my television and see him deliver the speech almost unchanged. So in those circumstances, you have to force ambiguity out. In those cases, it succeeded, but it doesn't always do so. You do need ingenuity to finish a negotiation like this, we negotiated the last stage, the last four years of the negotiation, without Paisley and Adams ever meeting. The whole negotiation was conducted by shuttle diplomacy. In the very last stage, um, we agreed that they would meet. We agreed it would be televised. We agreed how long it would last. We agreed what they would say. But we could not get them to agree where they would sit. They just absolutely refused. Paisley said he wanted to sit opposite Adams, so they looked like rivals. Uh, Adams wanted to sit next to Paisley, so he looked like an equal. They would not agree. In the end, a very clever Northern Ireland office official came up with an idea of a newly designed table, a diamond-shaped table, so they could sit next to each other and opposite each other at the same, sort of, at the same time. And it's that sort of ingenuity you need if you're going to succeed in concluding a negotiation. Um, let me just... I, I'd like to talk about ISIS and things like that, but we'll do that in questions. But just one last point on negotiations before I conclude, which is... Um, Getting to an agreement is not the end of the story by any stretch of the imagination. When you get a breakthrough agreement like Oslo, for example, uh, that is not the conclusion. People relax, people celebrate. When Oslo was produced, the Palestinians celebrated, some Israelis celebrated, actually most Israelis celebrated. But it, um, it fell apart very quickly because no one tried to sell it and no one tried to implement it. If we thought when we took off from uh, Stormont Castle in 1998 that we had finished the problem in Northern Ireland, we were sadly mistaken. It took another nine years to implement the Good Friday Agreement, nine years of negotiation. And that is usually the case in most big agreements. So an agreement is not the um, uh, conclusion of the process. Implementation is the conclusion of the process, and that takes a very long time. It's only when people see that you're going to do what you said you're going to do that they begin to, begin to trust you. In the case of the first agreement between ETA and the Spanish Socialist government, they had an agreement, but it wasn't very specific. Um, the Spanish government didn't deliver what it said it was going to do. It waited three months for a quarantine period, which they hadn't said they were going to do, before they announced 
the agreement. They didn't, said they didn't announce it in Parliament, but instead uh, Zapatero made his speech in the rather appropriately named Salon of Lost Steps outside of Parliament. Uh, he didn't use the language that they thought had been agreed. On Essa's side, they carried on infiltrating commandos and weapons into Spain. So both sides cheated, and not surprisingly, the agreement for the parties. You only trust someone if they actually do what you, they say they're going to do. So let me conclude, because I've rubbished it on rather long, for which I apologise. But the, uh, my conclusion from all of this is that terrorism isn't going to go away. There is no technological solution to terrorism. Drones are not going to solve terrorism. Jungle-penetrating radar is not going to solve terrorism. Uh, the only tools we're ever going to have are the two tools we have now, which are fighting them and talking to them. Uh, and that's what we have to understand. The American military uh, revised their coin, their counterinsurgency strategy, twice under General Petraeus's leadership after the Afghan war and then after the Iraq war. And the um, uh, conclusion he came to was we have to change. We can't think we're just going to fight. We have to also deal with what Mao called the water they swim in. We have to deal with the communities, the grievances that terrorists uh, thrive on. Um, but that wasn't enough. So his second revision, he lo started looking at um, what he called um, reconciliation, which didn't actually mean what I would mean by reconciliation, but meant trying to buy off individual fighters from the Taliban or, or from al-Qaeda in Iraq. In my view, that's not far enough. If you're going to solve a terrorist problem, you certainly have to use security forces. You're not going to do it without that. If their life's not uncomfortable, there's no way they're going to negotiate. Uh, and you certainly need to address the grievances, but by themselves, history suggests that will not uh, conclude the problem. You'll also need to have the talking element for it, and I would argue that is true of al-Qaeda and ISIS as well as, um, as well as the groups we've dealt with in the past. Indeed, I remember when I left government I, uh, in 2007, I said on the basis of what I'd learned talking uh, to the IRA, we ought to be talking to Hamas and to the Taliban and al-Qaeda, not surprisingly, I was denounced by the, my colleagues in government who said this is outrageous. But I just note that since then, uh, the, uh, both the Israeli and the American government have negotiated with Hamas a ceasefire. Um, the American government has negotiated the release of Sergeant Bowie Bergdahl with, from the Taliban and had political negotiations. And uh, Eliza Manning and Buller, the former head of MI5, says we should be talking to al-Qaeda. So these things can change. They don't seem to be set in concrete. The other thing I'd observe is that you don't often solve the problem straight away. Um, Seamus Mallon, the SDLP leader, described the Good Friday Agreement as Sunningdale for slow learners. Sunningdale was the 1973 agreement between the Irish government, the British government, and the parties in Northern Ireland. It had almost the same measures in it as uh, the Good Friday Agreement in terms of power sharing. It hadn't worked in 73. But the Good Friday Agreement didn't come from nowhere. We had a failure in 1973 with Sunningdale. We had a failure in 1985 with the Anglo-Irish Agreement. We had a failure in 1993 with the Downing Street Declaration. But the Good Friday Agreement was built on those failures, and that's what tends to happen in nearly all of these negotiations. And a strange thing happens at the end of a negotiation. You go suddenly from a problem that's insoluble to a, a, a peace agreement that was always inevitable. In the, Good Friday, in the final conclusion in Northern Ireland, uh, beforehand, everyone said there was no way you were going to solve Northern Ireland. After it happened, they said it was always inevitable. It was because of the economic changes. It was because of 9-11. It was because of this, that, and the other. Both are, both are wrong. Uh, in my view, um, all conflicts in the world are soluble. Even the Middle East peace process is soluble. But it's not going to be solved by itself. It's not insoluble, but it's not inevitable it will be solved. They will only be solved if you have some of the, the, the things I've outlined. You have some proper political leadership if you have real patience 
And most of all, if you can remember what happened last time, because if you can't, you're destined to repeat those mistakes again and again. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. <clears throat> I think it's time now for some questions. Uh, maybe I'll start with a couple of questions. Um, first thing that strikes me is that, that talking about dialogue, talking about talks, as we used to say, or talking about talks about talks in Northern Ireland, talking itself can sometimes be an opportunity just to keep a lid on uh, a conflict actually not leading to any settlement at all. Um, you know, you, you, Northern Ireland went on for 25, 30 years. There was a lot of discussions. Um, Israeli-Palestinian peace process. You could sometimes wonder whether it's the, the, the talking, the discussions, the dialogue is really just about keeping the status quo and not actually progressing to a settlement of some kind. So that's one thing. The second thing is, are there? Do you have a, in your own mind set about? peace processes and negotiations, any limits to uh, who you should talk to? Because you've, talked, you, you've mentioned that you suggested talking to al-Qaeda, to IS, and so forth. I mean, it seems to me there you're dealing with very different kind of agendas. You know, many of the, in the book, many of the processes of negotiation that you discuss, there's real similarity of agendas, essentially, nationalism, territory, um, ideological splits that are m more, uh, that we might be more, more, less civilizational, you know, left-right splits. Mm -hmm. um, so the potential for negotiation is greater in much of the uh, conflicts that you're talking about in the book. Whereas with Al-Qaeda IS, do, do you not think, I mean, what would you talk about? What would you negotiate exactly? Do you, ha do you have an answer to that? You know, what, what actually would we negotiate with them? Yes. Good. <laughs> Let's hear it. Um, no, starting with the first one. I mean, both obviously are extremely good points. The first one about process is... Uh, it's true. I mean, uh, people do try and use processes sometimes to manage a conflict rather than to, to solve it. In the case of Northern Ireland, I think it's a bit different because we never had inclusive talks. And one of the things that I would argue is if you don't have inclusive talks, you're not actually solving anything because if you're leaving people out uh, against their will, you know, leaving the DUP out of the Good Friday Agreement, George Mitchell always thought was a wonderful thing because had we had Paisley in there, it would have been very hard to come to an agreement. But in the end, we had to have an agreement with Paisley if we were going to settle the problem. So... I think inclusive is essential if it's going to work, and I think that's really the case for Northern Ireland. The, the process we had was kind of a pretend post process. I mean, talks between the British government and the Unionist Party was not going to resolve the problem of Northern Ireland, even if the SDLP were included. You had to uh, include everyone. I think the Middle East is, is that you, one can make a much better case, and clearly, I mean, the peace process has been used to try and manage the issue, to try and end one intifada or end another intifada. Um, and prevent a, a further one, one starting. And I do remember about gosh, three or four years ago now, maybe before, quite a while before the Kerry process, a number of Palestinians saying to me, we don't want any more process, we just want a peace agreement. And I said, well, I understand why you resent the peace process given what's happened, but how do you think you're going to get to an agreement without a process? So I can see that processes can lead people to lose hope because they go on and on. They can be seen as a way of managing, but I also don't see how you have any chance at all 
of getting to an agreement without a process, and that's why I think that building a tunnel thing is, is actually um, the case. And it needs to be a real process. The trouble in the Middle East is often it's not a real process, nor in the case of the Middle East is it inclusive, because if I'm an Israeli negotiator, why would I want to make a settlement with the PLO and lead out the Hamas when I know I'm going to have to make another agreement with Hamas and a whole series more concessions to get an agreement there? I would actually be interested only in making peace once. In terms of the no limits, um, yeah, I would. I have come to the conclusion, I didn't always have this view, but the work I've done in the last few years and uh, studying these conflicts, I do think um, there should be no group beyond the pale to talk to. Um, I'm distinguishing between talking to and negotiating. As I said, there are only certain conditions in which a negotiation is likely to succeed. I think it's always worth having a channel, always worth trying to uh, negotiate with the group. Now, the, when, we, when people talk about these fourth-wave terrorists, so you had the, uh, the anarchists, the, uh, no, the, yeah, the, the nationalists and the Marxists, although they kind of overlap the first three waves, and now we have um, ones we accuse of being um, nihilists but religious nihilists. I think the thing that's striking when you look back at the history is each time we meet a new group, we say, oh, this is completely different, we can't talk to them. And then we do, and then we discover that actually we had to talk to them in the end. So as I say, when I said that we should talk to the Taliban, Hamas, and Al-Qaeda, my critics said, well, it's fine to talk to the PLO and the IRA, but you shouldn't be talking to these groups. Ten years before, they'd been saying you shouldn't talk to the PLO or the IRA. And ten years before that, they'd be saying you shouldn't talk to IOKA in Cyprus and so on. So it seems to me we do keep having to relearn the lesson. The differences that people tend to throw up as this new groups are saying why you shouldn't talk to them. The first is that they're religious. Uh, as one Israeli cabinet member put it, that God doesn't compromise, so you don't want to negotiate with religious groups. On the other hand, peace has been made with GAM in, uh, in Indonesia, which was an Islamic separatist movement, a very self-consciously Islamic movement. It's been made with the MILF in, um, uh, in Indonesia, uh, in um, Philippines, which is, uh, again, a, a very... Um, a very religious, very Islamic movement. So there's nothing about Islam that says you can't make peace with a, a religious group. Um, second argument usually put forward is that these groups aren't rational and they're irrational, therefore you can't engage with them. But that was what was said was about all the previous terrorist groups. Um, and actually the rationality tends to be discovered when you sit down and talk to them. I don't know how you can work out they're irrational until you've actually tried to sit and talk and understand what they've got to say. The third difference, which is definitely a difference, is the number of people they want to kill. You know, IRA, ETA were trying to kill 10, 20 people at a time. These guys want to kill uh, as many as they possibly can. Firstly, that's not necessarily morally different, because when we react to this sort of terrorism, we tend to react to an American journalist or a British aid worker being killed, not to 330 uh, Egyptian cops or 300 Syrian soldiers being killed in exactly the same way. So we're a little bit sort of... Um, uh, double standards about, about, about that sort of thing. But most of all, I think that it's this question you say of what would you actually talk to people about? And I think there are things you would talk to people about. If you take ISIS, um, the reason that ISIS was able to take uh, Mosul is not because they had a 1,000 fighters, but because the population of Mosul actually preferred them to the Iraqi army made up of Shiites who had been exploiting and abusing them for a long period of time. So there are genuine concerns of the Sunni population in Iraq that need to be addressed, and someone needs to sit down and talk to them about that. So just as in Northern Ireland, I wouldn't sit down and talk about a united Ireland. I'd talk about power sharing. I'd talk about uh, not gerrymandering the constituencies. I think in the case of, of ISIS, I would sit down and not, not – and I'll come back to this – but I would sit down – eventually, and talk to them about uh, the situation of Sunnis in Syria and in uh, Iraq, how that should be addressed, how there could be some sort of power sharing, and various issues like that, which I see as their real concerns rather than 
necessarily an Islamic caliphate. In terms of ISIS, I'm not suggesting you could sit down with Mr. Baghdadi and have a negotiation today. That staff, that wouldn't, that's not going to work. But what experience shows, not just in Northern Ireland, but in most of these other negotiations, is what happens is you open a channel. That channel is just used for transactional business for a long period of time. It's only eventually that it allows a negotiation to take place. So what I'm arguing is one should open a channel now to a group like ISIS or al-Qaeda, which will not lead to negotiation now, but will, when there is a mutually hurting stalemate, which doesn't exist at the moment, but will, I suspect, exist. I mean, maybe they'll disappear, but it doesn't look to me like... Um, Islamist extremism is going to disappear. It may not be called ISIL by the time we come to talk to it. It may be called son of ISIL or son of al-Qaeda. But at some stage, it seems to me there's going to have to be such a negotiation. I mean, it's a more complicated subject than I've suggested by my answer, but I think there are at least possible answers. Okay, let's throw it up to the floor. Hi, thank you for such an interesting talk. Do you think, at, uh, sorry, at the heart of most terrorists is trying to bring a justice to the world? Do you think we could stop most terrorists from even starting if there was an international court where community groups could bring uh, justice, to, uh, could bring religious institutions and political leaders like Tony Blair and George Bush to justice and face possible jail for their actions? Uh, at the moment, there is nothing for the community groups to... Uh, claim a, a fair society and at the moment people like Tony Blair uh, and me <laughs> uh, face are above the law and George Bush are just yeah. totally above the law yeah. thank you okay. yeah. Let, let's take a, a, a bunch of questions together please here at far back thank you um, I just have a question on the issue of hostages um, I think it's sort of quite relevant to the talk that you've just given. In the case of Islamic State of Iraq and Levant, um, we've got a sort of group situation where they're, you know, maintaining the pretense that hostages are still alive when they're not. And uh, we have a sort of apparent stance as a nation on not negotiating on hostage takers. Um, anyone who knows anything about the subject knows that we actually do through intermediaries, but we sort of maintain the pretense that we don't. Um, I just wondered if you had an opinion on sort of hostage negotiation, whether to engage in it, um, whether a public stance is worthwhile and how it affects uh, our sort of wider engagement with terrorists. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll take one more. Um, this woman at the far back, yeah. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, I'm from Colombia, so I appreciate all the points you brought up regarding the current peace process. And I would venture to say that the overall sentiment in the public at home is, while mostly supportive of the peace talks that are currently going on with the FARC, is still very fearful or reluctant. Um, you know, this is attributed not only to the Uribista opposition, which, as you know, is very vocal against the process, or also because uh, FARC leadership go, have gone on media a couple times already, even after Kofi Annan's intervention, saying that they know they do not intend to spend a day in jail. So my question would be, in your opinion, what, sh what measures should the Colombian government undertake in order to counter the eroding public trust, not only in the talk, in the talks, but also in the institution of government. Thank you. So, so can you repeat the last bit? Uh, not only in uh, eroding trust, not only in the talks, but also in the institution of government. <coughs> Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. So, so starting with the first one on, on Iraq and, uh, and, well, of course, there is an international court. There's the ICC um, where people can, if they want to, 
uh, governments can bring, bring charges of this sort. I don't think, frankly, even if you strung up Tony Blair and George Bush and me and a few others, you would necessarily persuade ISIS that was met their grievances. I think their grievances are actually rather wider than that kind of thing. So, no, I don't know that I do think that. I think you're right in saying that terrorism is, feeds on grievances and uh, usually it's an expression of frustration at the inability to achieve people's aims by political means. People, for example, the IRA felt that their political, what they wanted to achieve politically was not possible politically because politics was stacked against them. And that's usually, if you look from Philippines to Colombia, what the argument that you will find if you talk to these terrorist groups. It's not usually about individuals. Actually, in the case of Boko Haram, you could argue that it is because their argument there in Nigeria is that uh, it was the way that their uh, leader was killed by the police in custody that's their initial grievance, but actually it's based on much, much wider grievances. So I, I doubt the existence of a sort of citizen's ICC would... Would, would make much difference to that kind of thing, to terrorism. I think you're right, though, about grievances and the need to find ways of addressing those grievances if you're going to make the chances of terrorism less. In terms of hostages, um, uh, I don't work on hostages because it's a, it is a different sort of discipline than, than, than political negotiations. Uh, and it does raise the very difficult question that you say, do, should you negotiate with hostages? There's a kind of classic prisoner's dilemma that um, if you're an individual hostage, you'd very much like them to be negotiating on your behalf. But uh, the reason that the British and American and other governments have been trying to persuade the French and Italian and other governments not to uh, pay ransoms is that uh, that encourages people to kidnap more people and also helps to fund terrorist groups to a large extent. So, for example, al-Qaeda in the Maghreb is, is believed to have gained about $30 million of income from hostage-taking and, of course, encourages them to do it more and more. So there's a classic... Um, if I was, a, terror, if I was a, a, a kidnapped victim, I would be very happy if someone negotiated on my behalf, but I can see the general point uh, about um, not negotiating. I, observe, I mean, it's a related discipline, and I observe, it, interestingly, in, in New York... Um, you talk to New York policemen, in hostage situations, uh, traditionally, they would turn up with a SWAT team. Uh, and in 80 to 90% of cases, the, the uh, hostage victim would be killed. Uh, now they turn up with a psychiatrist and a negotiator. And in 90% of the cases, the hostage doesn't die. So different approaches can produce different results. But how one would apply that to uh, terrorist groups is, is, is slightly more difficult. Um, the third point on, on Colombia, um, you raise an extremely good, good point. I mean, interestingly, the opinion polls yesterday showed the support for the peace process going up again to a high 70s. Um, so there is very strong support for that, but there is not strong support for um, impunity or any sort of uh, get-out-of-jail-free card for the FARC. And you know, the trouble is public often want two different things in, in these circumstances. You think about the public, they usually want to have lower taxes and higher spending. In the case of terrorism, they want a peace agreement, but they want to pay no price for it. And usually you have to come to a package which you put to them to make a decision about whether or not that package is acceptable. So in Northern Ireland, no one would have voted to let all terrorists out of jail after only two years, even if they'd murdered people. It's what we had to agree to, to get to an agreement. If that had been presented as a separate issue, there's no way it would have been supported. As it was, as part of the package on Northern Ireland, it was difficult enough to get it through. An interesting thing has happened since Northern Ireland, though, which is the creation of the ICC I was talking about earlier, and that has changed the game quite a lot. Uh, now, um, it is not possible to have amnesties. Traditionally, in negotiations with armed groups, you would have um, an amnesty at the end of it. Everyone would be let off. The generals, the, um, uh, the terrorists would be let off. You can't do that anymore because the ICC 
will not accept that. They will demand there must be justice because they argue, I believe correctly, that uh, unless you have justice, you're not going to have a lasting agreement. But Colombia is going to be the guinea pig on this. This is going to be the first conflict that will come to an end since the creation of the ICC. So what it manages to do uh, with terrorists uh, and what it manages to do in the balance between justice and peace will be um, set the pattern for everywhere else. Now, I think it's rather unreasonable if you think you can sign a peace agreement and get the person who signs the deal to say they're going to go to jail for 30 years. If I'd had to say to Jerry Adams, please sign here on the Good Friday Agreement, by the way, you're spending 30 years in jail, he may not have been really wild about signing it straight away. And the same is going to be true of the leaders of the FARC. On the other hand, you can't have impunity. You cannot have them now just going free because, as you say, it will lead to uh, disgust with the institutions of the state. So there is a very difficult balance that's going to have to be drawn in Colombia and then we'll apply more generally thereafter. Okay, take some more questions. Um, Yes, this one at the front. Hello, thank you very much for your very interesting presentation. Um, I happened to be working for Lloyd's uh, of London when the commercial union building was attacked by the IRA. Mm -hmm. And I remember vividly uh, the, the conversations around this constituting a tipping point. Uh, the square mile was obviously targeted, and then the city of London, Lloyd's, refused to continue with terrorism cover, really, in most of the insurance policy that were in place. So clearly John Major had to do something about it, privately or not. The other thing is I was part of um, General Petraeus surge in Baghdad in 2007. I was part of a very interesting uh, project Uh, which had to do with changing the public administration of their ministries. Uh, Which, um, it leads me to a more interesting, perhaps, question. Is there any way that in the political processes that you envisage when we talk about negotiation, there is a way of factoring in, basically, behavioral sciences? It seems to me that there is not enough awareness, awareness around what makes somebody become a terrorist. And certainly in my project, we had a lot of anthropologists mm-hmm. on the ground looking at the situation from that particular vantage point. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, here at the back, gentleman on the left. Quick question. Um, your conclusions on what happened to Terry Wade, please. Okay. And this woman at the front here. My question is, uh, you were mentioning about uh, mutually hurting stalemates. My question is, is that a prerequisite for negotiations to start? Um, If not, then on who does the prerogative of initiating a negotiation really rest on? I mean, uh, given a democracy, okay, you would expect that the state might be forced at some level to initiate it. But if it's an authoritarian regime, then do we wait for deaths to happen and a mutually hurting stalemate to occur for negotiations? Thank you. Um, so, just a comment on the, on the surge. I mean, um, not the Iraqi surge, but actually the Afghan surge. One of the things that's striking is governments, again, have a, there's a pattern that governments always try to find a military security response to terrorism first. They fight, they fight. When it turns out the fighting isn't working so well, one of two things happens, either or often both. Sometimes they then try and reach for other methods. So, for example, in the fight against ETA in Spain, Uh, the government resorted to GAL, which was a paramilitary group that started trying to kill ETA people in France. And so often with such groups, they ended up killing mainly non-ETA people. 
and it made things worse rather than better. The other thing governments do is they think one last heave. If we just really up the ante, if we really fight, we out our gloves on, we'll, we'll make a difference. So, for example, in Afghanistan, the answer was to send many more troops to Afghanistan to see if that could force the Taliban onto the back foot and start negotiating. The trouble is that the armed group may not share their view about being on back foot. They may think they can carry on fighting, they can absorb the surge and wait. And certainly the surge in, in Afghanistan made very little difference to um, negotiation with the Taliban. It didn't change their view of, of what, what was possible and, and what wasn't. In terms of your question, though, about psychologists and anthropologists, yes, absolutely. One of the interesting things that's happened over the last, what, decade and a half, two decades, is um, the creation of a, of a discipline of a negotiation, particularly in the Harvard Negotiation Project, where people really um, uh, bring together different disciplines. And actually, one of the people I work with a lot uh, is a guy called Bill Uri, who wrote a book, co-wrote a book called Getting to Yes, who's a professor of negotiation at Harvard, who's part of the Harvard Negotiation Project, who is an anthropologist by origin. And it's those skills like anthropology and um, psychology that make a real difference to, to negotiation and, and really is a, a, a crucial part of it. On Terry Waite, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I mean, um, I mean, I think it comes back to the hostage thing. That it's, uh, I mean, he tried to go and negotiate hostages and ended up becoming a, a victim. I think he deserves credit for trying to, to negotiate, and it was a shame that he was captured. And I mean, I try and make sure I don't get captured, which is probably maybe that's one lesson I draw from Terry Waite: be a coward. That's the lesson um, I draw. Um, the uh, the mutually hurting stalemate is is, is a very interesting question. The, if you look at the academic work on this, the, um, and I wouldn't take it all too seriously, Zalman's a very interesting man. He came up with the idea of a mutually hurting stalemate, but then he came up with a later theory called ripeness. I think mutually hurting stalemate is an interesting way of thinking about things, because, for example, I, I'm now the Prime Minister's Special Envoy in Libya, amongst other things. When I go, went to Libya a year ago, I thought, oh, good, there's a stalemate. We're going to be able to solve this problem. And then, after going back a few times, I began to realize it wasn't actually a mutually hurting stalemate. It was a stalemate where both sides couldn't win. They realized they couldn't win, but they could make gains at the margin. They could make more money. It wasn't hurting. Money was coming in. They weren't really threatened. So we didn't have a mutually hurting stalemate. So it was much harder to, to get to an agreement. So I find the mutually hurting stalemate a useful tool for thinking about when a negotiation might succeed. Ripeness, I find, to be a load of old rubbish because it's basically tautological. You can't possibly know if a conflict is ripe until you've solved it. So the only conflicts that are ripe are the ones you've solved. So it's completely circular. Uh, it's not like a pear where you can reach up on the chair and uh, the table and, and on the tree and see if it's, you know, you squash it or not. It, 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 conflict's not like that, which takes me to really answer your question, which is my own view is you have to keep trying to negotiate. So somewhere like Libya, you don't sort of wait till you've got to a... Um, a period of ripeness. You keep trying to see if you can turn your channel into negotiation. And most times you'll be frustrated. But you keep on doing it until the opportunity occurs and it's going to work. So the, 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 um, the responsibility for doing that rests on the government. And as I say, it's difficult for democratic governments because they can't be seen to be talking to people who are committing these horrific acts against their own people. It's difficult for the armed group because they don't want to look like they're giving in or they're weak. And that's why a mediator can often be useful if coming in and trying to suggest ways of, of, of resolving it if they can do it under the radar screen without people being, without being seen, without causing political problems. Maybe I'd just ask a question at this point about uh, relates to the, the question about behavioural science because the vast bulk of the literature on terrorism is actually written by psychologists. And I, I, the question I, I'd like to put to you is about 
academic expertise mm -hmm. because after all you're this is very much a kind of practitioner approach are you trying to to sort of fill a gap I mean what is the gap that you're filling what is your view on the academic uh, input into these kinds of issues do you think we're, there's something missing that you as a practitioner with long experience can bring I, um, I was frankly pretty ignorant about uh, the academic literature before I started on this on both on negotiation and on terrorism. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book was to have a chance to... I spent a lot of time on aeroplanes, so I, I had a chance to read some of the books. And there's an interesting crossover between the literature on negotiation and the literature on, on terrorism. I just said that it's useful, but I think it's pretty unripe. It's, pretty, it's a, a discipline that has not really developed fully, I would say, particularly actually the terrorism one, but also the negotiation one is mainly developed when it comes to business rather than to the sort of negotiation I deal with. Um, so I found it useful, interesting to read it, but uh, I think it'd be a couple more decades before you could really call it a, a developed field. But that's spoken as an ignorant practitioner rather than an academic. I mean, that obviously has consequences for how governments should uh, manage these issues. I mean, well, you, you essentially learned on the job. Yeah, but I mean, see, take for example Colombia. That I think uh, what Santos did that was really smart was when he came in, he knew he wanted to negotiate, but he didn't want to make the mistakes that had been made in the three previous negotiations with the FARC. So he looked at why did Caguan fail, and some fairly obvious reasons. They came up with an agenda that was 100 issues long, including the future of capitalism. It was never going to succeed. Uh, he looked at other negotiations in South Africa, in Northern Ireland, in uh, you know, far afield like Aceh. So he looked at the lessons and he drew from those lessons certain things. And he then built the negotiation on a very firm um, basis. So he started with the basic agreement negotiated in Havana, which is a very clear six-point agenda. Uh, negotiations can't go beyond those points, so it's, it's limited. Uh, the time is limited. So I think having a firm basis for negotiation, I don't think that necessarily requires academics, although actually Bill Urey is extremely good on this stuff because he has both practical experience as well as um, uh, academic experience. And I think if you can get that crossover, I guess what I was trying to do is get to a crossover between the academic and the... Because I think this academic has something to offer, but so do the practitioners. They don't seem to actually meet up. And if one could make them meet up, that would be something very useful. Okay. More questions? Yes. Um, I was just wanting to ask about the personalities. Um, a lot of what you were talking about, you seem to have found sort of um, someone in the other side who you could see as, I guess, an intellectual or political equal. Um, and this sort of ties back into the ISIS debate. Um, to what extent yeah. is that model sort of not necessarily as viable when there's, I guess, hacks on the other side or when there's less, less sophisticated political people or people who aren't as engaged in statecraft as you were? Uh, yes, this gentleman at the front. You've talked in your speech about really about organised groups. How how do these methods apply? Say, for example, in India, where there are there's a Maoist insurgency, there are disparate groups. In fact, in, in some sense, it's a more important problem in India than Kashmir is. But because there's no organised group, and the response essentially is a military response, and not dealing with some of the economic and social problems there are, say, in northeastern India. Yeah, no, very good point. 
This gentleman in the middle here. Yes, out of three parallel sessions, I chose this lecture much due to the title, which I found both interesting and challenging. And, uh, and thanks for the insight and the experiences on this d difficult di dialogue between two parties. Now, I think it's difficult also in terms of the, the, how, to, how to define the two parties. Who are the terrorists and who are the we? Yeah. I would expect I would change depending on the perspective, <laughs> very much so. And this, this is not, for me, it's not an academic question, it's a very political question. Yeah. So if you could shed some light on that, please. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So if I take, why don't I take the three backwards? And so, so starting with the terrorist point, you're absolutely right, and I do dwell on this in the book a little bit. Um, I mean, the correct title of the book should be talking to non-state, to large non-state armed groups that have political support who use terrorism as a tactic by assaulting uh, uh, civilians. But the publisher said I couldn't put that on the front cover, so they made me call it talking to terrorists which actually makes it difficult when I hand it out to people who are regarded as terrorists but don't regard themselves as such. Um, ter terrorism is, is actually a very... Uh, it's, it's really not a very useful term because terror is essentially a tactic. It's a tactic that can be used by governments, it can be used by insurgent groups, it can be used by individuals, and it doesn't really define anyone uh, uh, from that point of view. But there is a category of non-state armed groups, and we do go around calling them terrorists. So there's not too much point in pussyfooting around them. But I absolutely take your point. I mean, you, you, there's a reason that people take to, to terror, and you have to try and understand that reason. You don't have, have to agree with it at all. And indeed, I would never agree with anyone using terror, a government or an individual or, a, or an armed group. But unless you understand it, you have very little chance of, of trying to, to solve it. And you know, Nelson Mandela and uh, Yasser Arafat both talked about having all their lives been described as terrorists and yet been sort of greeted as heroes when they came out of jail. And that's what we've done time after time. Um, uh, the interesting question about India and the Advazis and the Maoist groups there. Um, in, the, the, again, I dwell on this in the book at some length. The, the importance of a group being coherent and cohesive is crucial if you're going to make any, any progress. At the end of our first meeting in Downing Street, um, Jerry Adams took Tony Blair and me to one side, and, and it was in the cabinet room. In the cabinet room, there's a bit at the end where you have two pillars that separate the room off from the rest. And he took us to the bit so no one else could hear us. And he said, well, look, I could make peace quite quickly with some of the IRA, but if we want to make peace with all of the IRA, then we need time and space to do that. And the basic bet we took was, instead of the traditional view of British government's which was to split the Republican movement whenever they can, Instead, we wanted to get the whole movement to peace as far as we could, so you make peace once rather than many times. So cohesion is important. Um, in some of the groups in the northeast, like the Nagar, I think there is a fair amount of cohesion, so it is possible. The advances are difficult, and the approach of the Indian government and, and, and state governments has been different. Sometimes they've tried talking, sometimes they've tried fighting, sometimes they've tried killing the delegation on the way to the talks, which is probably not the best way of encouraging them. But... Um, it, it, you know, it, 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 Boko Haram is a good example. Boko Haram is a very – the government has made peace with Boko Haram – I've forgotten how many times now – but it never works because it's not a cohesive group. So you're making peace with a, a very small part of it that can't deliver the whole thing. So it does make it very difficult in those circumstances. Um, about the individuals you're dealing with, well, um, a certain amount of humility, I think, is, is due in these cases. The, well, the approach of the other way. The, um, Tony Blair – kept asking Jerry Adams if he would introduce him to the Provisional Army Council. 
that was alleged to be led by someone called Slab Murphy, who was called the Chief of Staff of the IRA. It was my opposite number as number 10 Chief of Staff, according to John Reid. The... Um, Jerry Adams kept saying, yes, yes, I'll fix a meeting for you with Slab Murphy and, uh, and, the, uh, and the, um, the PAC. But it never actually happened. And eventually I asked Jerry, well, are you ever going to fix this up? And he said, no, there's no point in Tony sitting down with the PAC. They're not going to, they have rather different interests in life. They're not going to have much to talk about. They would actually make them more suspicious to talk to Tony Blair suddenly turning up and talking to them about politics than they are already. So you're right that you need to have someone who thinks politically... Um, uh, about an issue to be able to have a political negotiation rather than simply a transactional negotiation. What I don't think is true is to say that you will find that the people in ISIS or um, Al-Qaeda are not capable of having such a political... Exactly because they have a political cause, you need to find a way of talking to them politically. And if you look at the leadership of, of ISIL, which we now know more about... You know, you've got uh, what you've got. You've got the de- one of the deputies is a former colonel in special forces in Iraq uh, under under Saddam. One of the members of the Shura is a general. Under you're talking about people who have got political minds and political, and you would be able to negotiate with them just as well as Jerry Adams. Jerry Adams never went to university. He never had a political training uh, until after the hunger strikes. He'd never run for parliament. So, you know, just because you don't come from the same milieu as the sort of middle-class stooges like me doesn't mean you can't talk politics. Um, and you need, but, but your point is right. There's no point in talking to purely military men because they're not going to have much interest in a, in a political settlement. Okay, I think we need to bring proceedings to a close because there are books on sale outside the old theatre here. And Jonathan will stay for some time to sign copies, if you'd like. Um, but uh, I'd like to thank Jonathan for a fascinating talk and um, 